Hi there, esteemed audience, and welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm your host, Rob Kent. As you know, I'm the author of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, and Banneker Bones and the Alligator People, and the upcoming third, still yet to be revealed, third Banneker Bones adventure. Uh, Banneker Bones is a biracial 11-year-old boy genius detective. Uh, his cousin, Ellicott Skullworth, comes to live with him in Latimer City uh, from the small town of Brownsboro, Indiana, only to be attacked by giant robot bees, which the boys then have to fight with EMP blast rifles whilst riding around on jetpacks, as naturally that is the only way uh, to approach a giant robot bee infestation. Uh, if you're curious, you can check out Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees as a paperback and audiobook narrated by the exquisite David Radke. And the ebook is free, free to download whenever you're watching or listening to this, wherever fine ebooks are sold. So check that out. Once you're hooked on the series, come back and see me for books two and three with money. Uh, under the super secret pen name Robert Kent, I write. Uh, Stories for older readers, such as the young adult novel All Together Now, a zombie story, and All Right Now, a short zombie story. Uh, both of those are about, you know, I mean, zombies <laughs> primarily. Uh, if you like The Walking Dead, it's uh, very close to Walking Dead fan fiction. We've got teens that are in. Uh, um, uh, action beat by beat. Every chapter ends with a um, uh, with a cliffhanger. Constantly being chased by zombies and dealing with the emotional fallout of the end of the world from a teenager's perspective. Uh, and then I've got the serial horror novel, The Book of David, which is a five volume serial horror novel. Uh, broken up into chapters. It's about an atheist who buys a haunted house that then begins to give him religious visions involving flying saucers. It is way out there. It's crazy. It is me doing my best Stephen King impersonation. It's very much for adults. Uh, so if you like the idea of a long horror story with lots of violence, lots of profanity, lots of everything, The Book of David is the one for you. You can check out The Book of David, Chapter 1 by Robert Kent. Not Rob Kent, Robert Kent. Uh, you can get that first chapter for free as an ebook whenever you're watching or listening to this, wherever fine ebooks are sold. So check that out. Get that one. Get Banneker Bones. They're free. Go nuts. Um, if you want to keep tabs on who's coming up on the podcast, I don't announce the next guest anymore because I'm always wrong. But next Saturday, you bet I'm going to be sitting here with somebody else who's going to be amazing, uh, as I try to be for you each and every week. But you head to middlegradeninja.com. You can at least see a listing of who's scheduled to appear in the near future. Uh, you can also read interviews with hundreds of literary agents, editors, and other authors, publishing professionals, the kind of folks that you want to know more about. Um, so check that out. Uh, and that's it for the announcement. So let's get started. Uh, today I'm talking with Angie Karcher. How, Angie, how are you this day? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for clearing time out of your schedule. We were talking a little bit before, and it sounds like uh, your schedule is just booked <laughs> wall to wall with different activities you've got going it on. So I really appreciate you clearing a spot. Oh, I, no problem. No, it is booked. It's been quite a busy year of, of ups and downs and um, lots of exciting moments. And um, so, no, I'm happy to happy to, to be here and talk to your viewers. Well, give uh, a esteemed audience kind of an overview of your background since they haven't, like me, been stalking you online to find out all kinds of nifty <laughs> questions to ask you tonight. Sure. Um, 
Well, I um, live in Evansville, Indiana, very, uh, very southern part of it, of Indiana, right across the Ohio River is Kentucky. Um, and I have lived here uh, my entire life, um, but I am originally a kindergarten teacher. Um, I got married to my wonderful husband, Stan, and we have four children who are grown. And over the years, um, I was a stay-at-home mom for about 15 years which I loved. I, I don't regret that at all. It was an amazing experience. Um, and then I, I did a, a number of various jobs. I was a developmental therapist with First Steps, which is a state-funded program to help kiddos that are delayed. It was an in-home visit, um, and I did that for about three years. Then I worked as the early childhood coordinator and then director of education at our local children's museum, which is called CMO. Uh, Children's Museum of Evansville, and that was the most fun job I ever had, um, constantly creating activities and events for families and kids, um, just for the sake of having fun and learning. So, um, and then my first book came out, and I thought, you know, if I'm ever going to actually do this writing thing, um, which I had been doing on and off for a number of years, I thought that that was the time, and so I uh, became a children's author. Um, and at, at this point, I have three books out and three more to come. Um, and so, honestly, as a teacher, I never, ever thought I would be a writer. And so you don't always know what you're going to be when you grow up. Well, I'm still trying to figure that out. <laughs> <laughs> this I is definitely a, a big part of it, but there could be more yet to come, I'm hoping. <laughs> Absolutely. No, I agree. So when uh, when did it turn around for you that you said, oh, I do want to be a writer. I'm, I'm interested in this. Well, when I, when we had young children, um, and, and, and this is kind of sad to say, but honestly, when we got a home computer <laughs> and then we got the Internet, um, I had been writing short stories and poetry for our kids just for fun. And um, I got online, um, connected to the, the big wide, wide web, and um, started researching if you wanted to be a writer, how to go about that. And, and I had no background, no idea really how to do it. Um, and that was back in the, you know, early or to late 80s, early 90s. Um, and that was in the day of days of chat rooms, which sounds kind of creepy now. Uh, but there were chat rooms for writers, children's authors. And so I made my way to those and started. I wasn't brave enough to comment. I would just read them and try to learn and figure it out. And they, they kept mentioning this acronym SCBWI, and I had no idea what that meant. Um, and I absolutely was not brave enough to chime in and ask anyone. Um, but finally I figured it out. It stood for the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators. Um, so I found their website and they, they were listing um, events. And so conferences in Los Angeles and Taiwan and London, and one in Terre Haute, Indiana. And I was like, okay, okay, it's, uh, I'm going to go. Like, it's, it's, it's meant to be. Um, and so I, I went to this conference. It was in, in Indiana State University. Um, and I thought, I have no idea, you know, what I'm doing, but I'm going to pretend I'm a writer. Um, you know, you, you go to those first events feeling sort of like a fraud because you don't really know what you're doing, but you want to portray that you're confident. And so I wore um, flowy, long clothing, which seemed like what a writer would wear. <laughs> don't and, worry, writers. Eventually, you absolutely know what you're doing. 
You uh, just well, had like, to fake exactly it at first. Exactly what right? I wear now. It's really <laughs> funny because that's totally what I wear. Um, but I, I went and met amazing people, and that was the beginning of my writing career. So what year was that that you uh, attended your first conference? Um, that was about in 2002. And so I was a member full-time for off and on for years. And so as life allowed, I would go to conferences. Um, but you can imagine raising four young children. They were very close in age. Some years I just couldn't participate. And so um, many fast forward many years later, 2012, um, I was, it's when I was director of ed at the Children's Museum. Um, I was asked to sit on a board for our bicentennial celebration of Evansville, Indiana in 2012. And I'm sitting there with a whole group of historians um, taking notes to represent the Children's Museum. And they kept mentioning how they had all these activities and events and they had all this money, <laughs> but they had nothing to offer children and families. And so I had a, a a manuscript in my computer at the time that had been sitting there for seven years and I had written a history of Evansville for children um, mostly because I had taught third grade which is the year that they they learn local history in Indiana it's man, state mandated um, and then when my oldest ch um, child went to third grade they didn't have a book anymore and so I mentioned to the committee that I had this book of course then they were interested they vetted it and Within a year, we wrote a grant, and we were awarded $13,000 to put Where the River Grins in all third-grade classroom, classrooms in Evansville, Indiana. And that was my first book. And I thought, okay, now I'm going to be a writer. <laughs> <laughs> Done. Here it is. Done. Exactly. That is a lot of hustle uh, to go out and get a grant. Uh, I mean, you did that yourself, right? I assume you had a little bit of help. Yeah, it, it's always nice when they say we have this money to spend. Can you write a grant for it? <laughs> <laughs> and that is honestly the way it worked. You know, there was lots of corporate sponsors for the Bicentennial. Um, and just so happened that the publisher ended up getting word of the manuscript. You know, it's a small town I live in. Um, he just happens to be in Evansville. It's uh, Mark Thompson is my publisher of MT Publishing. And so I met with him, and the only way I would do it is if the historians on my committee would vet it for, you know, history, facts. I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm a kindergarten teacher, um, but I have a love of history, and I wanted to make sure, of course, everything was accurate. And so it was a really nice collaboration between um, my publisher and the historians and the school corporation to make sure that the teachers could use it. And so they still use it today in the third, third grade classrooms. That is a perfect built-in local market that you, you've identified, and I assume cornered. I don't know if yep. there's somebody else in, in Evansville that you have fights with on a regular basis trying to get not in on really. your territory. <laughs> <laughs> no, not really. And, you know, I often do talks at conferences on regional publishing. It is really a great way to get your foot in the door. And then that uh, led on. What point did you go on and get your literary agent? Because I'm assuming you didn't have one at that point, right? Oh, I did not. Well, so that publisher asked me to write another book. So I did. It was the a middle grade biography um, called The Legendary R.A. Cowboy Jones. And it was about a jockey at Ellis Park Racetrack, which is actually in Kentucky. Um, and he was 75 years old and still racing at the time. Um, and that took about a year of my life to do, you know, lots and lots of personal interviews 
and lots of archival photographs and so lots of research but what I learned is how to do all of that because when someone asks you do you know how to write a middle grade biography about a jockey you say absolutely and then you <laughs> figure it out right <laughs> and so that's exactly what I did and so I was I'm not afraid to, to take chances um, and then the third book with the same publisher was one that I pitched to him myself and it was called Santa's Gift and it's it's a it's a true story um, but it's written in a fictional um, historical fiction where um, the characters in the story story are fictional but the actual Santa Claus statue is in our town and it's 35 feet tall and it was built for a Christmas bazaar and it stood it stood on a highway in Evansville Indiana for about 30 to 40 years and all of a sudden it disappeared one day and um, the story talks about how he was found and the community came back together to fix him and put him back up um, and so in, in the process of that at that point I had three regional books um, I had a, quite a variety nonfiction um, biography and historical fiction um, and you know keep in mind that I attend lots of conferences and events um, through SCBWI and other throughout all of this time period and um, the way that I got my agent which <laughs> which was your question um, so I'm with Victoria Sauvaggio with Storm Literary um, she's actually my second agent um, my first agent I was with her for about three years um, and it it wasn't a great fit for me personally um, that is a very important relationship and you have to have um, you know, it, it, it's almost like a family member. And um, this particular agent was not a real hands-on person, the first one. Um, and my agent now is very editorial, and so she gives me lots and lots of feedback and, and great direction on if something's not working, how to fix it, what, what she suggests. And um, But I, I signed with her because I had been sort of stalking her <laughs> for a while as as we writers often do with um, agents um, I you know I had a, a top five list and she was number one on my list um, and I had um, won a contest from a, a very small publisher on the East Coast for a manuscript that I sent in called the scene Castle Man and they wanted to publish my book that was the prize for winning this contest and so because I had been submitting manuscripts to Victoria um, I contacted her and I said hey I have this this sale even though it was a contest it's considered a sale um, and would you be interested in representing me in this process and she said well I don't represent anyone on a just a one-time basis but send me 10 to 12 manuscripts I'll take a look and if I feel like we're a good fit then we'll move forward and so I did so that means you have to have at least 10 to 12 manuscripts ready to go because you got to send them right so these are picture books and which is is what I'm focusing on okay Victoria knew they were, they were picture books when she requested 10 to 12 yes exactly <laughs> okay. oh my god exactly. what, a, what an ambitious yeah. person <laughs> yeah it's a very different it's a very different thing picture books versus a novel so um yeah so I sent her 10 to 12 things and um she texted or emailed back a couple days later and said hey can we talk which I've I've come to learn that typically that means if they want to talk to you on the phone 
that's a really good sign, you know? <laughs> and so she and I talked on the phone for about three hours. We really hit it off. Just personally, we connected. We got along great. She's Midwestern. Also, she lives in Cleveland, Ohio area. I'm in Southern Indiana. There was just a, an instant connection. Um, and so we talked and I signed with her that night, that day verbally. And, um, what's ironic is the man, the contest that I won and I didn't even realize this until later cause she started jumping in to sort of finagle that, that process for me was the contest was for unagented authors. <laughs> and so that meant that I couldn't win. Um, but what I realized is that having the right agent after having one that wasn't the best fit for me was so much more important than getting a book published with a publisher that was small and probably would not do a whole lot for my career. And so I, I, um, ended up passing on the publication. So then somebody else could win that, which is an opportunity for them. And then I got the agent that I wanted. Well, I think it sounds like you won. (laughs) <laughs> I definitely won. We've met in person twice now, which is really unusual for um, authors to meet their agents. I found out um, we've been very fortunate. We've we've been able to really hang out and get to know each other. Um, and so I'm very fortunate. She's she's amazing. We actually sold a book together to a national publisher just in January. Um, and so I can announce it, even though it hasn't been announced officially, oh, um, because yeah, because it can take, you know, you sell a book. So I sold a book in 2019. It won't come out till spring of 2021. So it gives you a very interesting perspective on time frame. Um, because when I, when I sell a book to my regional publisher, it can typically come out the next year um, or sooner. <laughs> well, 2021, that's practically a breakneck speed for a traditional it's publisher. Not, it's a, it's a, I'm actually very pleased with how quickly, yeah. It, it's, it's very quick for this you know, for picture books, um, but it's called The Lady of the Library, and it's sold to Sleeping Bear Press, which is a very small but amazing publisher in Michigan, a very well-respected publisher, so I'm thrilled with that. That was my ultimate goal, was to, to make it to that next level, the traditional publishing level, and so I'm. Um, we've signed contracts, and now I'm waiting to find out who the illustrator will be, because that's not you know, in my control, the publisher picks the illustrator. Um, and so we haven't started any edits or anything. Um, but I'm very excited to turn that corner. Um, and we've got several editors with some interest on a few, about three or four manuscripts that I have out right now. So if I could just sit down and do some writing, <laughs> uh, with uh, a daughter getting married this year and, and lots of other travels and things that I had already committed to, Sometimes that's the biggest challenge. It's just finding that uh, consistent time to write. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I need you to tell me that at a certain point in your career, it becomes easy and automatic and you don't have to worry about it anymore. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I'm telling you. I'm, and, and then the, the, the little horn's going to. No, it is, it is challenging. I've, I've been doing this off and on for many years. 2012, for sure, what I would consider professionally where I'm writing full-time, submitting with agents, um, and I'm still trying to find the balance. You know, I, I have become very um, involved with SCBWI, um, which is such an important organization to many writers and illustrators. And, 
And so it's, you are the it's Inada regional advisor for Indiana. Is that right? Yes, yes. I just took over as regional advisor for Indiana in June. Um, and I have an amazing team. Um, Diane Bradley Cantor is my assistant regional advisor. Um, she lives up in South Bend. And then Teresa Robeson is our illustrator coordinator. And she lives in Bloomington. Um, and it's been so much fun. We're actually all three really good friends. And so we're a little older. Our kids are grown nearly. And so we have a lot of time to dedicate to it. And so we're um, excited about really giving back and helping to offer um, important yet fun activities and events for Indiana authors and illustrators. Gotcha. So there's a lot to drill down on there. Because uh, I want to ask you more about your agent experience, and I want to definitely ask you a lot about uh, the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators. I'm going to start there, because uh, you said that you, you first originally joined in, in 2010. 2002. You first joined? 2002. Um, and then, um, so what is the process? When, when did you become involved to the point? Because I'm assuming it wasn't just show up at a conference, show up at a conference, third conference. Hey, you want to be a regional advisor? I want to be in charge. <laughs> no, 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 not at all. No, I attended conferences as an attendee for many years off and on when I could. Um, and then about, about seven years ago, I attended my first national conference for them, um, which was in Los Angeles. Um, and that sort of opened my eyes to the bigger world of writing and illustrating. Because, you know, when you only stay in your area or regionally, it's, it's amazing what is offered. But you sort of, um, you have to open yourself up, I think, to the broader experience. And so SCBWI is an international organization. It's huge. Um, and it's about, been around for many, many years. I, I can't even tell you how many countries and states, I mean, obviously all, all of our, our, the United States are involved, but there's hundreds of countries where SCBWI is, is represented. Um, but I went to the Los Angeles conference and met editors and agents and dozens and dozens of other authors and illustrators. And then I've attended the New York conference, which is in February, um, several times. And it sort of gave me a platform, which I learned was as important if not more important <laughs> sometimes than the book. Um, you know, you have to be willing to put yourself out there and meet editors, meet agents, because you can have an amazing book that's sitting in your computer, but unless you're willing to get out there and really pound the pavement and try to sell it, um, which is what you do by going to conferences, um, it's going to sit in that computer for a very long time. Um, and so when you go to conferences, if you go to a session, with an editor or an agent, you get to submit a manuscript to them with a, a free pass. And so a lot of people don't understand that, but you know, a lot of agencies are closed to submissions. And so they will not accept anything. And, and some agencies do, but that manuscript goes to a slush pile. And of course we don't have physical slush piles anymore, but I'm old enough <laughs> that when I first started submitting manuscripts, there were physical slush piles, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of manuscripts stacked up and you had to mail them and you had to send a self-addressed stamped envelope so they could mail the rejection back to you. <laughs> oh yes, no, I have a, somewhere I, I took it down. I used to have a nail just filled with all my, my mailed back rejections and my, yeah. my SASEs. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's a real thing. And, 
So when you go to these conferences, it gives you the opportunity to submit to people that you would never have the chance to do, especially if you're unagented. And um, so, you know, even though I didn't get my agent particularly that way, the connections that I made by going to conferences and finding out about her and talking to other authors who knew her and had been um, represented by her is how I ended up creating a list of, of agents that I was interested in. Um, and so um, SCBWI has been a huge part of my process and my success. And so I'm excited to be able to give back. So um, more questions about that, but maybe we should uh, just for folks listening that want to go to conferences or maybe been to a conference or two and are thinking that it's time to go to more. Um, one, is there a way to um, generate funding for that beyond just working extra jobs here and there and saving money? Uh, and two, what tips do you have for conference goers to get the most out of that conference? Yeah, the, that's the that's the tough part, you know, figuring out how to be able to afford to go to conferences um, versus what you're going to get out of it. Um, and so I worked off and on over the years. I worked a part time job. I was fortunate. My husband, um, you know, has a, a job such that I was able to stay home with our kids. But even then, I would still do as as much you know, work as I could, um, working for friends or doing various various jobs over the years. So I would try to raise what money I could that would afford me to go to the conferences so that wasn't coming out of our family budget. Um, a lot of people will be able to raise money to go to at least one, what they call big conference a year. Um, and so I think, you know, that goal of, of that, because you're investing in yourself, honestly, um, and attending one conference where you can submit to an editor or an agent could change your writing career or your illustrating career. And so it, it became a priority for me, especially after I started going to the bigger conferences. It really started um, helping me understand the broader view of publishing and really got an understanding for um, the business side of things. And it's not just about the writing. You know, if you're not somebody who's... Um, willing or able to speak in front of people and do school visits and do blog blog interviews and um you know book signings if that's something that you have um that that really challenges you then you need to think about that because that is at least 50 percent if not more so of the job it is not just the writing you know um and so Oh, now I've forgotten what your whole question was. <laughs> oh, it was a really long, involved question. It was a little ridiculous. Um, one, uh, how? Well, so if I'm if I'm going to a conference and I want to eventually become Andy Karcher or Angie Karcher, uh, the uh, regional advisor for for the place, I want to I want to take over, <laughs> but I want to start small. Uh, yes. What are tips do you have for somebody to get the best experience out of attending a conference like that? Oh, right, right, right. The second part. Okay. So, um, whoops. Oh, I've lost my pillows. Hold on. <laughs> <laughs> stand by, folks. Pillow yep, difficulties. Okay. Um, so attending a conference. So you want to read the directions um, after you've registered. You know, read the directions very, very carefully. You always want to submit for a manuscript or a portfolio critique if you can. Because, you know, we spend a lot of time finding 
amazing um, editors and, and agents and authors and art directors to come in and bring and we bring these people in from New York and Los Angeles and wherever across the country. So, you know, that little bit of extra money that you can spend to get a critique with them is the most valuable thing that you can do at a conference. Um, and so you're getting automatic feedback and if they love what you've written or what you've illustrated, then they're going to ask for more. So that could change your career. There, there are moments that literally people's careers are made at conferences because they requested a critique. Um, and so even if somebody doesn't love what you've written, you're going to learn why it didn't work. You can go home, you can revise and edit, and you know what to do differently to submit it to the next one. Um, but the other thing is, I think, just get out there and meet people. Pass out your business card to everybody. You know, we have these, biz always have business cards, always. Um, and I, I, one suggestion I had that I think is a great, um, great suggestion is to always have your face on the business card because as an editor or an agent especially you go to these conferences and they do dozens of them every year if not more they meet so many people <laughs> but you know like i'm a facial person so i can recognize somebody from their face maybe what i won't remember their name but always hand out a business card with your face on it you want to have your email you want to have your website ready to go um you always want to have they're always going to say well what are you working on so that means you need to have a pitch ready so that's like an elevator pitch is where you sort of spend, you know, about 30 seconds pitching your idea of a manuscript to an editor or to an agent. So you need to have a few of those in your pocket and ready to go. And, and just as general conversation comes around, you can come right up with what it is that you're working on. And the, the cool thing is they might say, oh, I, I really love that idea. We haven't, we don't have anything like that on our list of, of what we're ready to publish and so would you send that to me and then you get to do that um, and so meeting other authors and um, illustrators meeting people networking um, that is the one thing that I learned the most from going to especially the bigger conferences is the networking value alone um, I used to run uh, well I know I still do um, but I had to take a, a break for a little while but it's called rhyme revolution and so I um, it was a writer's challenge that happened every April and it was for authors that write rhyming picture books. And so I would invite authors and, and editors and agents that would write a blog post on my blog and then people would read the blog and they would comment and everybody who commented on that particular blog was in their name was put in a hat for a prize for that day. And so by the end of the month, we had given away lots of books that had been donated and critiques and just opportunities to submit to various people. And so that, it used to be called um, Rhyming Picture Book Month, um, and now it's called Rhyme Revolution. It sort of took on a, a life of its own, and so now we have the Best in Rhyme Award, um, which I give out in New York City every year in February. Um, but all of the bloggers that I use were people that I met at conferences. That's perfect. So, with so many, uh, so many questions, I'm, I'm uh, <laughs> wondering where to where to even begin. Um, <laughs> one more question about the Society of, of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators, and I definitely want to ask you about running your own conference and, and everything that's involved with that. 
Um, but say that you're somebody that's in, oh, I don't know, a place like Indiana uh, or any of the other Midwest states where you're not at the biggest conferences out in Los Angeles, New York. Um, if there's not a huge conference going on, there's just kind of smaller conferences going on. What other benefits are you getting for your membership to the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators, even if you're not able to attend all of those? Yeah, of course. Well, just first of all, just being a member is a value. So when you are sending um, a manuscript to, let's say, an agent um, and they want to know sort of your credits, if you put down that you're an SCBWI member, that gets their attention. That to them, that is a prof it's the, in my opinion, the professional organization for children's authors and illustrators. So if you put that down, they understand that you are a professional, that you understand the importance of learning how to write and submit and promote your books in a professional way. So that alone, I think, brings a lot of, of weight. Um, but also, we offer critique groups. We have um, Manju Howard is our critique group coordinator. So all you have to do is contact her, and she will set you up in, in either an in-person critique group, if there are lots of them that meet around the state, or um, a, an email or a Facebook critique group, or really whatever you're looking for. That is the key, because you don't ever want to submit anything to an editor or an agent that hasn't been thoroughly reviewed and critiqued by other people. Um, not your family, <laughs> not your family. But my members. mom really loves but it. They love everything. <laughs> I know they love everything we write. But if you can get into a really good critique group or even find a really good critique partner, um, somebody who is going to give you feedback, honest feedback, um, you know, you also have to develop a very thick skin because if something's not working for me, I want to know. And so if somebody tells me, oh, this section is very unclear, I want to go back and fix that. It's not going to hurt my feelings. I want it to be perfect. I want it to be as understandable and entertaining and enjoyable to kids as possible. And so that's what a critique group can be for you. Um, but also just being a member of SCBWI, you know, we offer conferences. We have a retreat um, coming up this fall. The Autumn Frost Retreat is at Brown County State Park, and that is November 8th through the 11th. That's our very first big event as a, as a new um, SCBWI regional team that we're putting on. Um, we're also offering a, um, a yearly cheer celebration luncheon, um, which is going to be December 14th in Indianapolis. We're actually bringing in Stephen Mooser, who is one of the original founders of SCBWI with Lynn Oliver. Um, but Stephen's coming in and he's going to do a morning chat with whoever wants to come. It's a free event. Um, there will be an expense for the luncheon. And then we're going to announce lots of exciting you know, good news, things coming up. We have a new mentor program that we're offering starting um, 2000, in uh, 2020. And so we're going to be announcing who the mentors are and how people can apply to that. And that will be um, hopefully going on every year from now on. Um, so that will be one-on-one, -on -one, you know, um, collaborations with a mentor and a mentee where they work on different genres of writing and illustrating. Um, we, we, because we're all a little older ladies and we've been around a while, um, we're trying to bring back some things that we know have worked in the past. And then we're also trying to offer some new, new events for people. Um, we have the Hoosier book happenings, which we've brought back. Um, our library mentor or coordinator, Karen Kalinsky is doing that. 
and so she'll put that out um, a couple times a year, and that is a newsletter with um, Hoosier books written and illustrated by Hoosier authors, and that is a newsletter that goes to all the libraries in Indiana, um, public, private, and school librarians, and um, we're really trying to make connections with, like my goal would be to make connections with universities, um, with all schools, with libraries, with bookstores, um, and just really help people understand in those businesses what SCBWI is and what we can offer because we have all of these authors and illustrators that do school visits which can help kiddos understand you know what it is that we do and you know maybe um, that gives them some direction in their future what they want to be as they grow up. That's uh, a lot of benefit that you can get out of uh, a single membership. Uh, sure. I should point out, while we're talking about who's your authors, I always encourage authors, if you're interested in being on the number one children's book podcast, I assume. I don't know. Who, who vets these things? Absolutely. I <laughs> <laughs> uh, who's your authors always get preference. I, I'm, I'm very, uh, very Indiana-centric. I'd be happy to chat with you. Uh, so everybody that's listening that's in Indiana, know that you've already got a, a foot in the door beyond any authors outside of the state. So... Uh, We've talked about the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators. I wanted to also ask you about the Rhyming Revolution, your conference that you're running. Um, starting with, when did you decide that you needed to run your own conference, and why did you want to do it separate from the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators? Well, you know, back after my first book came out, um, you know, when I didn't know at all what I was doing <laughs> as a writer, but I had this book, right? All um, evidence to the contrary. Because <laughs> it's going pretty well. You got a book. You're out there selling Yeah, it. so far. You know, I am that person that says, yes, I know how to do it. And then I figured out, right? So um, so I wrote the book. And then I had to figure out how to go about publishing and marketing and all of that. But um, I'm also not afraid to say no. And I usually figure out, you know, what it is that needs to be done. Um, but I had taken a an all-day webinar um and it was on platform and i it was it was because people kept talking about platform and i didn't really understand what that meant and this has been a good amount of years ago um and so basically at that point um that's when social media was to me it was very new like i had probably six facebook friends and they were my relatives you know <laughs> um and it was talking about how you have to sort of create this social media presence and you need to figure it out what it is that's your thing and that then can become um, a way that you can become known um, and so your book is out there but you know what there are lots of books out there <laughs> and there are lots of books in your genre out there and lots of books in your genre by people all over the world and so why would people buy your book you have to figure out what it is that you can do to make your name and your title of your book and the, the topic of your book important. And so what I always love to do, even though my first book was completely nonfiction, The History of Evansville, my second book also completely nonfiction, The History of the Biography of a Jockey. Um, my third book was What is My Passion and My Happy Place. It was written in rhyme. 
And it's a rhyming picture book about the Santa statues. It's called Santa's Gift. And so that, being a kindergarten teacher, I understand the importance of rhyme for kids with their language development and phonemic awareness. And it's just a mnemonic device. And so it helps them understand and remember um, and they're learning language when they're hearing and listening to rhyme because they're not reading it, right? Like kids are, you know, five-year-olds, many five-year-olds are not reading yet. And so they are listening to it, but they can make the connections with rhyming words. And so as a kindergarten teacher and developmental therapist, I understand the importance of it for their brain and um, their just, just understanding language. Um, but as a writer, to me, it's fun to write. It's To me, it's like writing um a challenge or like the like doing a jigsaw puzzle or a sudoku or um just it, the challenge of making all of the components work together to tell a story is what i like to do and so that's where rye Pibomo, rhyming picture book month that's where that came from because i thought you know if i'm i had an agent ask me um many years ago she said i, I know you like to write rhymes she said but have you ever studied poetry and I hadn't. I had never studied poetry. My background is in, in early childhood education. Um, and I had, you know, I had no background in English or language. And so I thought, you know, she's right. Like, if I'm going to have this as my platform, I really need to have a really solid understanding of it. And so as I started studying poetry and poetic techniques and everything that was involved in that, I thought, you know, this could be my platform. And so April is National Poetry Month, but there was no um, event for writers in April. Um, there are many writers challenges out there um, for writers like NaNoWriMo's coming up here in November. It's National Novel Writing Month. Um, back also in November, uh, Tara Lazar had Picture Book Idea Month. It was Peebo Idmo. Um, and so there are lots of other ones now, but at that time there was nothing in April. And that was National Poetry Month. So that became Rhyming Picture Book Month. Um, now, we started through in poetry, too, in the beginning. But as the more and more followers I got, which I think we're near a 1,000 followers right now on Facebook, in our, our private Facebook group, um, I sort of had to narrow that down. Because either I could do poetry or I could do rhyming picture books. It was hard to, to be able to do both. And so I would have bloggers um, talk about how to write in rhyme and Honestly, it's not even about the rhyme. As, as a professional writer, it's about the meter. Um, and if you don't know what meter is, you need to study it if you want to write rhyming picture books. Um, but meter is the stressed syllables of a sentence or a stanza. And so that needs to be a consistent pattern throughout the entire manuscript. And so if it's stressed, unstressed, unstressed, stressed, that, that's a pattern. And that is called meter. And so that needs to be consistent throughout. And even though the ending rhyming words rhyme, if they don't make sense and your story is following the rhyming word instead of what makes sense as a story, then that's wrong. And so basically what I started to do was explain to people how to do rhyming picture books professionally. Because editors and agents constantly at conferences would say, uh, well, we don't accept rhyme. And that's because they get so much terrible, horrible, no good, very bad rhyme all the time. <laughs> because people who think, as a new writer, they think, oh, well, everything has to rhyme because that's for children. Well, they don't understand meter. And they don't understand the concept of what needs to be in an actual picture book. And there is a very definitive 
um, you know, map of what needs to be in it. It needs to have a, a, a great hook and it needs to have tension and three points of tension and increasing tension to a peak moment. And then the child in the story needs to solve the problem. And then you have a satisfying ending and, and that's called an arc. And so if you don't understand those things, um, that's sort of why I created Rhyming Picture Book Month, which later became Rhyme Revolution. And so it was about if you're going to write in rhyme, this is how you need to do it. And if you're not going to do it this way, please don't do it because you're making it harder for the rest of us to get published writing rhyme. Um, and so I'm clogging up the works with your terrible rhymes. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And also, you know, what I started to explain to people is when you go to a conference and an editor says we don't accept rhyme, that's not true. They do. But they know that people that write professionally understand that and they submit it anyway. They don't want people that don't know the business or the professional aspects of it. They don't want them to submit. And so that's a very important little, you know, little clue is that, you know, please go to Rhyme Revolution. We have all kinds of archival. We've been doing this for, I guess, about seven years now. And so there's lots and lots of archived um, blog posts where people can just go back and read, you know, what it is and how to do it. And, and But there are some of us that sort of get it, and I can't necessarily explain why I love writing in rhyme. Um, to me, it's fun. It's also fun to read rhyme to kids. It's fun for kids to listen to rhyme. Um, but it's it's there's just a joy that I find when trying to make everything work, you know, and honestly, I think it's harder than writing a novel. And a lot of people laugh, laugh at that because they don't necessarily understand the parameters that we have to go through to write in rhyme. You know, you have to have a, a, an amazing story, no matter what. Um, yes, the rhyming words are important, but a first grader can write rhyme. So it's not about the quality necessarily of the rhyming words, but it's about the story, the meter, and the rhyme. And that all has to work, and it has to be interesting and funny, and the hook, you know, and, and the ending has to make them want to read it again. And it, there, there's just a whole lot involved, and so people that have never done it before don't necessarily understand the challenges involved. And so that that's why I created the platform. So how long does it take an expert like you head of the, the rhyme revolution. Um, how long does it take you to write a rhyming picture book and be satisfied with it? You know, it's interesting. Um, sometimes it comes. Sometimes as a writer, you're just in that zone. And it comes and very few words change from the very beginning when you get it down to the very end. Um, and Santa's Gift is a perfect example of that. I tried for about four weeks to write Santa's gift and I had this rhythm in my head and that seemed to be what was speaking to me and I tried to write it in that rhythm and it was not working at all and so I would put it away and then I'd work on it again and it it wasn't working and I would put it away and I'd step back for a couple weeks and then the day I wrote it I actually went and sat on the Ohio River um, with my computer and it literally came out almost all in one full sweep. Uh, has Very little has changed since then. And what's so crazy is it's in the exact meter that I was trying to write it in. And by the time I finally wrote it that way, 
I wasn't even thinking about it anymore. It was just internal. I do have a musical background. I played in um, um, band in grade school and in high school. Um, and so I think that definitely aids in my meter ability. Um, because it's like if somebody's a good dancer, they have a great rhythm. Well, you have to have a great rhythm to be a writer of rhyme as well. Um, and it can be taught. It certainly can. Um, but it's a whole lot harder to teach somebody who doesn't have good rhythm how to write in rhyme than if they do have a good rhythm <laughs> internally. Um, and so I, you know, to answer your question, Santa's gift, honestly, I probably wrote that in about 45 minutes. And very little has changed since then. Um, and other picture books, I would say, you know, work on bits and pieces that can take a couple of days to a couple of weeks. But for me, most of the time, either it comes or it doesn't. Um, and if it's not coming, I just put it away. Because the struggle and the frustration of really just trying to force it doesn't work for me. Um, I wish I could say that I was somebody that sat down at my computer every morning at 8 a.m. And I wrote. But I'm not. <laughs> um, I'm somebody that if I if I get an and I have a running list of ideas in my phone of titles or concepts that I just will you know it'll come across me typically when I'm driving. Um, a lot of times if I'm scrolling through Facebook in the evening just relaxing, I have a um, in Facebook you can save images, and so I have hundreds of images that says cool idea. And those are meaning cool picture book ideas. And so um, I wish I could tell you that I had time to go back through all of those, but I haven't yet. <laughs> um, but, but those things sometimes, you know, writing a book isn't necessarily just sitting at a computer writing. A lot of times writing a book is just sitting and thinking. And so I do a lot of thinking when I'm driving. I do a lot of thinking when I'm in the shower, or when I'm laying in bed, ready to fall asleep at night. And so those ideas are percolating. And once I figure out the beginning and the middle and the peak moment of tension and then the solution and I come up with characters, you know, I'm a very visual writer um, and I'm also a closet illustrator. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, yeah. I don't like to tell people that often because it, feel like, it feels like a lot of pressure. Um, I have no training in illustration whatsoever, but I've always been very um, artistic and I love to do crafts and um, I did pr present a portfolio at the Los Angeles SCBWI conference this year. And it was horrifying <laughs> to put yourself out there like that. Was it horrifying know? in a way that's different from having put your books out there? Oh, it's so much worse. Yeah, it was so much worse. But I, it's like I told somebody, you know, it's like writing a first draft of something and putting it out, out on a table for hundreds of people to flip through. That's what it felt like to me because I had no... I have no illustrator critique group. It was just me putting some illustrations that I thought told stories out there. And so will I do it again? Maybe. Um, but I do think that I, I write very visually. Um, and so I think that definitely helps me, you know, to sort of imagine what those characters look like. But there is nothing more exciting than to have a picture book come to life when you start to see the illustrations from that illustrator. Especially if you really connect with that person, it's like, oh, it's exactly what I was thinking, you know. And so that, that to me has been the most rewarding thing is to see the illustrations from a story that I've written come to life in a book. 
Now, of course, I'm talking to you in the uh, phase of waiting for your newest illustrator to, to, to illustrate <laughs> the new book, which remind yeah. people, what's the title of that book that's coming out uh, in the near future? Yeah, near it's, called the, it's called The Lady of the Library, and it's published by Sleeping Bear Press, um, and it comes out in uh, May of 2021. And so I envision the Lady of the Library, I envision her as being sort of an Amelia Bedelia type character. Um, she has haunted this library for who knows how many years and she comes down one morning walking through walls and rattling chains and doing her normal morning shenanigans and she walks down stairs and no one's there and then she realizes the library's closed there's a lock and, and chain on the door and there's a sign that says um, to be demolished soon and she realizes then her home is going to be torn down. And so she's just completely distraught. And and the next morning, you know, people come in and they're boxing up books and they're tearing down shelves. And in walks a little girl, um, very precocious, Lee says to the lady of the library who's sitting precariously on a chandelier crying <laughs> that, you know, get down here. We've got work to do. We need to save this library. And uh, the two of them collaborate on the best way to create uh, interesting and fun shenanigans that draw people in to come visit the library and they make donations and I, I won't I won't tell you the end of the story but you can pretty much be assured that uh, it's a happy ending <laughs> Angie you are such a hustler hustler is there any librarian in the world that doesn't want to read that book aloud <laughs> to their, <laughs> their kids to come that's brilliant I hope not, right? No, I, I will say I think the end of the book says something like, and hopefully she'll be haunting a, hybrid, a library near you soon. <laughs> <laughs> or at least, uh, Angie Karsher can, please visit her website and invite her to come see her Exactly, <laughs> exactly. But it's it, what's interesting is that also has a local connection because in Evansville, Indiana, we have a Willard Library, which is supposedly haunted, and it's actually... If you type in haunted libraries, it popped up first for me um, on Google. Twenty four seven webcam where people yes. can watch the library. Yes. yes, I've done that. <laughs> yes, and it's their ghost is called the Gray Lady, um, which is actually copywritten. Um, and so I couldn't write a book of specifically about her, so I made it loosely about her and haunting this library. Although in that story, um, Willard Carpenter, um, who built the library. Um, ended up in his passing in his will he donated all the rest of his um, millions of dollars to support the library instead of to his daughter um, and supposedly the gray lady is his daughter um, and she comes back and haunts the library um, but so that's that's it's exciting to me to still have a local connection um, even though this story can be you know, promoted nationally, you know, to, to libraries. And, and I do remember consciously thinking when I wrote the book that libraries are struggling these days and how important it is to support all libraries. A lot of public schools um, or schools in general don't even have a school librarian anymore. And as a teacher, that just breaks my heart. And so I want to be able to do what I can, especially as a writer, um, to make sure that libraries will live forever and always have hard copy books for, you know, children and adults. So at this point, now that I'm talking with you and you don't, you haven't seen the illustrations for the book and you know what a big deal it is and you're not doing them. 
Are is that filling you with a special kind of anxiety that's different from the usual anxiety that writers feel on a regular basis? <laughs> Are you implying that we all have lots of anxiety? Because oh, yes, I know we do. We do. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, we do. Um, there's a definite excitement that comes with it. You know, um, yes, I would love to see who the illustrator is. I will say that even though I have these regional books published, I would be considered a new author in the traditional market. And so oftentimes they will put a new author with a big illustrator to sort of find that balance and help promote the book. So um, every now and then, you know, I'm constantly looking, you know, and, and thinking, oh, I wonder, you know, wouldn't that be cool if he or she would illustrate my book? And and every now and then I'll get, like, Facebook friend requests or somebody will request, like, follow me on Instagram and their illustrators. And I'm thinking, oh, I wonder. I wonder if that's my new illustrator. <laughs> <laughs> so there's the, – I, I look at it more as an excitement because I do trust my agent and I trust – um, Sleeping Bear Press to um, because they put out such quality books. They're highly respected for the. They're a small press, but they put out such nice books that I I'm not worried about it. You know, it, it's exciting um, to to think about who it might be, um, but also exciting to have a book on the national market. So, so what uh, what is, what goes into making that leap from uh, regional publications to the national book market now that you're considered a debut author, what, four books in? <laughs> <laughs> and yes. you've, got, you've got a couple of others coming out as well, don't you still, from, from MT? I do, I do. Um, I have one that was actually going to come out here before the end of the year, um, and with a, a number of obstacles, some mine and, and some just the, the, the business um, that book has gotten pushed back a little bit. It's the 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 first one coming out is called um, a clean sweep, and it is about an LST ship that was built during World War II in Evansville, Indiana, and it, we had a shipyard here in the middle of the the Midwest, which is a very unsuspe unsuspecting place for a shipyard, um, and so it talks about kids that worked at the shipyard and how they, even though they were children. Um, they were custodians and they pushed brooms and cleaned up and helped the war effort just as much as anybody else as an adult could do to support um, our country during those times. And so it, um, I'm excited about this book. I really feel like this will be well received even on a national level, you know, because of the history involved. Um, but that book comes out that we have an LST, an actual ship. That is a museum here in Evansville, and it's actually moving to a new location on our riverfront in the spring. And so the timing of the book now is is going to be considered um, a little bit moved towards that date, which we think will be a better marketing timing for the book. Um, so I'm excited about that. I love history. I had no idea how much I loved history uh, until I started writing. Um, and then the other book that's coming out this spring or next spring is called Sideline Slugger, and it's about a bat boy that um, works at a baseball stadium, which is called Bossy Field, and again, it's here in Evansville, and it is the third oldest baseball field still in use in the United States, next to Fenway Field and Wrigley Field. And who knew that that happened to be in the town where I lived? And so um, it's used by our um, high school teams, and also we have a team called the Otters, 
Um, and my husband would be proud of me if I could tell you what league the Otters were in. <laughs> but it's a minor league team. I can't remember the, the actual name of the, te- of the league. But um, it, is, it was also used in the movie A League of Their Own. Um, and so we had um, Tom Hanks and Madonna and Rosie O'Donnell and all of the stars in that movie were here in Evansville. Um, and that was the focus of uh, most of that movie. Did you get to meet him or just see him across the street? I didn't get to see them. I wish I had I wish I had gone and signed up to be an extra during the movie. That would have been really fun. Um, but I've been to that stadium many, many times to watch ball games, and it, it is a beautiful stadium. And it's we're very fortunate that we have a, a very active historic um, restoration program here in Evansville, and so we've been able to maintain and restore a lot of historic buildings, especially you know the baseball stadium and um, Willard Library, you know, with the the lady of the library. And so um, history is important to us here. I grew up in uh, Lebanon. And there was no. a, a single, a couple oh. of seconds in the movie Hoosiers, where our theater, the Avon Theater that since burned down, the marquee was there and it had some message about the basketball team. And so when we would watch it in class, we'd wait. And then when we saw our Lebanon Theater, we'd all go, yay! And then the rest <laughs> of the movie. Yeah. You know, and actually at Bossy Field, there's still a lot of signage and everything that is still there from when they filmed the movie. <laughs> but, uh, how long have you lived in Evansville? I grew up here, so I've, I'm 52. I'm not afraid to to share that. So I've lived here my whole life, and it, it is such a great place. You know, we're um, the third largest city in Indiana, um, but we're two hours from Louisville, Nashville, St. Louis, and Indianapolis. And so I can go see a off-Broadway show in just a couple hours or visit, you know, family and friends. And um, But we get to come back to Evansville, and it's a little quieter and great place to raise a family. You ever see yourself living someplace else? Uh, you know, I really have an affinity for the beach. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, I did a I did a session one time um, with an editor named Kendra Levin, and she had us visualizing where we would be in ten years. And I was living in a beach house, and it was red. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I do. I you know, my husband. Um, works for the state of Indiana. He's a civil engineer. So we're here for a while. Um, but our kids are grown and they've all sort of, you know, moved on in, in, in their own lives and their own homes. And so um, I don't know. I wouldn't say that I would always stay here. We'll see. Well, it seems you're extremely pro Evansville. I am. <laughs> Just because of I, all the books you've written about the history. You've got I, your I built-in do. base there in the third largest city in Indiana. Um <laughs> Is there more history yet to be uh, plumbed, you think, from Evansville that you've got planned for future books? I do, absolutely. Um, You know, Evansville, of course, were the crossroads of America and Indiana. Um, But there is a lot of interesting history here. Um, There's a creek here called Pigeon Creek, and it is named after homing pigeons that used to be, that used to reside near the creek and they would send messages out to people um, during the war, especially, you know, very important um, messages that would help um, with the war effort, I think. So that that's an interest for me um, to work on, you know, a book that possibly has to do with the pigeons. Um, but yeah, I can't, I can't divulge all my secrets. Oh, of course not. Um, 
but that 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 is one that I'm definitely interested in. Um, but I have I have more than enough ideas and very little time these days to to get them done. So I'm actually after the writing retreat in Brown County, I'm spending a week camping um, alone to just get away and write. And that's often the often how I have to do it. I have to get away from normal life for a week or two and uh, sometimes as much as a month. <laughs> Is that um, you in a just, tent or a cabin? How do you do it? Uh, yeah, we have a camper. Um, as we as we've um, become empty nesters, um, we have upgraded from a pop up to a, a, a full self contained camper, and so my husband's going to pull it up and um, hook it up all all set in Brown County, and I'm going to sit with Lucy, my assistant, and do some writing, um, and then the kids and and him are going to come spend the weekend and and hang out. But um, a lot of times, I'm always looking for someone's home. I do a lot of dog sitting or house sitting, um, which is also a really great way for me to get away and spend some time writing. For whatever reason, I seem to do more writing and and have more um, less distracted time when I'm not at home. Hmm. So if you can get out there someplace nice and quiet, like with the Ohio River, possibly yes. <laughs> playing a significant role. Yes, and water seems to be a big part of it. We said we have friends that used to have a lake house down in Lake Cumberland, um, and I used to go down there for weeks at a time, and it was on a gorgeous lake, and there's just something about this inspiring, you know, location. Um, it's a very quiet. I don't have the distractions of, of daily life, um, and I wish I could say that I could, um, you know, be as fluent of a writer at home, but I'm just not, and so I've had to figure that out. Well, it uh, sounds like you've got it down. I mean, you're on book number, uh, how many books? Six, six well, books six, will be six once you're there. Six that have sold. Yeah, six that have sold. That is extremely exciting. And I'm assuming you've got big plans to write at least another 12, right? Uh, or 15 or 25, yes. <laughs> what uh, What is it that keeps you writing specifically rhyming picture books? I mean, because I'm assuming that's you are the guru of, of rhyming picture books. <laughs> that's your platform. What is it that, that keeps you there? I'm assuming it's something that has to go back from your first step days to your kindergarten days. It's a consistent through line of, of wanting to communicate with children. What is it that still keeps you passionate about that subject now? Um, I just remember reading rhyming picture books to my own kids and how much fun that was and also to my kindergarten classes. Um, my favorite rhyming picture book is called Bear Snores On, and it was written by an author named Karma Wilson, um, which ironically was her very first picture book, and it was pulled out of a slush pile and at, at a big publisher, and so she became an overnight success. Um, and interestingly enough, she was one of the authors who presented at my Rhyme Revolution conference in New York. And so we've become good friends since then. Um, so there's nothing better than having somebody who you admire um, and look up to so much to then meet them and to, to, you know, make a connection and see that they're a real person. And um, she's just been very um, supportive of me and my career. Um, but rhyming to me is fun to write. I love the challenge. I also love to read it. Kids love to read it. It's just good for all of us. It's good. It's good for them. Um, but interestingly enough, my book coming out, you know, the uh, clean sweep, a, a clean sweep, um, is actually not a rhyme. And so I really can't say that I always intentionally write in rhyme. Sometimes it comes out that way, and sometimes it doesn't. 
um, and you just go with it. <laughs> if it's coming out in rhyme, I typically go with it because that means it's usually just going to flow very easily and very quickly. If it doesn't come out that way, you know, I'm okay with that. You know, I, I don't necessarily want to always be pigeonholed as the rhymer. Um, I, 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 I wear the badge proudly, don't get me wrong. Um, but I also have a lot of aspirations to write nonfiction. Um, I think as a teacher, it's something, you know, that, that we understand kids need to have a really good understanding of history. Um, I would love to write, you know, some books on, um, um, I love, um, oh my goodness, now I've forgotten, um, oh, now I'm blanking. Thank goodness for editing. <laughs> oh, you're <fine>. <laughs> <laughs> um, Oh, my gosh. I've forgotten his name. He's an illustrator. Drives me nuts. Oh. Anyway, um, you know, I, I I would love to write you know more books for kids on um, artists and authors and um, there's so many interesting stories out there. You know that that kids, you know, kids just don't understand in this day and age. Like librarians used to ride on horseback to take books to kids that couldn't get to a library. Um, and so that's, that's a book that, that's a story that I would love to tell at some point. Um, bookmobiles, you know, they used to drive around and, and, and they still do even today, um, in some towns where it's, it's, it's a van or a, a bus and kids can go to the library that travels, you know, um, Norman Rockwell is, is an uh, artist that I absolutely love his work and I would love to write a, a biography about him. Um, so I, I, as much as I do love rhyme, you know, I do probably love history almost more. And so if I can write a rhyming picture book, that's historical fiction, that's like the, the, the golden egg for me. <laughs> and it's just I can see on your face it just genuinely makes you happy inside it does it doesn't what's so funny is I had no idea as a young person how much I loved history um you know I started work on the working on the Evansville history book the where the river grins and I just became very passionate about it and I've even taught classes through a local university on Evansville history and I I had people come in that were dressed in period costumes and they would portray different characters throughout that time period of, of the founding of Evansville to, you know, the different important things that occurred along the way. And um, the kids' faces, they just light up and it becomes real. And, um, you know, they have a true sense of appreciating how we got to where we are, you know, even a small town in Evansville. Um, you know, it's the people that came before us that we build upon, you know, to, to create our communities. So, how uh, what's what's the best way to impress upon kids the immediacy of history? Because I know when I was a kid, everything that happened before I was born seemed like a million years away. And now that I see how fast time has moved, is and I'm forty. <laughs> to turn forty this year. Oh, you're so uh, young. <laughs> and uh, well, I've got a I've got a five year old, and I'm looking at how little time it was to get him from a baby to five, yeah. and I'm thinking, oh my god. Five more of those, and he's he's going to be someplace else. Oh, um, yeah. And uh, so it occurs to me now that, oh, okay, well, some of this history I'm reading about, that's just two grandmothers back to back. Yeah. <laughs> that, it's not nothing. that far. No, it's eyes. all about perspective and how you look at it and how real you can make it. For me, it's bringing history to life. 
as much as possible. Um, when our kids were little, we did a lot of traveling in historic places. Um, and it could be as simple as, you know, Lincoln Boyhood Memorial, um, you know, uh, Lincoln State Park. Um, there are a lot of um, parks, state parks in Indiana that have historic, you know, re recreations, reenactments. Um, we took our kids to Vincennes for the rendezvous one time, and they had, you know, reenactments of battles. And um, even though the kids, you know, they were all different ages being, you know, having four kids, they still, you know, just seeing it happen in front of them. Um, we went to uh, Boston, we, we went to Plymouth Plantation when they were young, and they were very young, um, but they still learned an appreciation from that. That was one of the coolest things I've ever done, and I really want to go back as an adult, and I would love to have taken them as they were older, but it, they literally take a day out of a journal from a pilgrim's life, and each person that is hired to portray a certain character during that time frame does what that person did, you know, back in the original days. And so if they were sewing a wedding dress for those few days, that's what these ladies did. And if somebody was planting corn that day, that's what this gentleman did, you know, and they, they spoke in um, an English accent and they talked to each other in an English accent. And it really felt like you were living, you were there with them living that real history um and so we've been been fortunate you know we've been able to travel quite a bit my brother lives on the east coast and so we've been able to take our children to a lot of places um that we would have maybe otherwise not gone um, but we've always tried to incorporate history somehow in our family vacations make sure you've got a perspective that's one nice thing about when i uh, get to feeling down about the world i, I read the news uh, and I think, oh, my God, it's, it's all so terrible. I'll then go and I'll read some history. And I'm like, nope, this is the best it's ever been. This is as yeah. good as it gets. <laughs> I hope it gets better. I'm a little bit jealous of future generations and hopefully how nice they're going to have it. But be very grateful that you're living in this day and age. Yeah. <laughs> no, I agree completely. And, and, and unfortunately, you know, a lot of things, what goes around comes around. And, you know, if you look back and see how things were, either similar things have happened in the past that are happening now only for other, you know, generations. Um, I think, I think for me, when life gets too hectic, I'll just put on the Andy Griffith show because to me, that's just like simple, happy life. <laughs> and, you know, I, I don't want to be somebody who sticks my head in the sand. Um, but also at times um, we get flooded with too much negative in the world. Um, and so if I can write positive um, rhyming picture books for kids that the kiddo's sitting in the parent's lap and they're reading that book together before the kiddo goes to bed um, and it has a happy ending and they're excited to learn something, then that to me um, as a writer and a teacher and a parent, I can't think of, it, of a better job than, than to be able to, to give that to a kiddo. We've talked about your passion for writing. Um, but I'm curious because I, I assume that the starting salary for the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators Regional Advisor is $2 million, just flat <laughs> the end. That's that's their opening <laughs> offer. Uh, but if that's not the case, <laughs> what is it about, uh, about working with them, about uh, having your own conference, about all of these additional things that you're doing that are writer-centric but not actually writing? What fuels your passion and keeps you doing those? 
Well, um, I wish I could say that I was getting $2 million salary um, for the, the job as regional advisor, but to many don't who know, don't know. It's that. <laughs> Probably <laughs> yeah. not. No, it's a volunteer job. It is a completely volunteer job. Um, the perks that come with it, ob other than obviously meeting amazing people and authors and illustrators and editors and agents and people in the business regionally and nationally, that is, alone is invaluable, um, making those connections. Um, but just, I'm an organizer, I'm a planner, I love to be involved. Um, and I also wanted to give back to this organization that I feel like has really done a lot for me. Um, but I have a great team and we have a lot of fun. And the perks that come with the job as regional advisor, assistant regional advisor and illustrator coordinator is that we get to go to the big conferences at no charge. And so we're going to the Los Angeles conference every summer, which ends up being about seven to 10 days, depending on what it is that we have signed up for. Um, and so all of those expenses are covered. Um, and to me, that's quite a perk, you know, because I know I never thought I would ever go to Los Angeles for anything. Um, and so to get to do that is is pretty cool. I usually try to take a vacation off, off of that trip. So I've been to Malibu and I've been up to San Francisco. Last time I went down to San Diego. So I'm doing getting to do a lot of traveling, which is also time that I spend writing. Um, so it's a win win for me. You know, I've been to New York and um I, you know, I go to the New York conference every year and that's paid for now. Um, so that is a definite perk for me. But the connections that I make and the meetings that I take during that time um, when I'm in New York um, or Los Angeles um, are also win-wins. Now, my Best in Rhyme Award, which I give out every February, I always time that with the New York SCBWI conference. And so the conference ends on Sunday. And then Julie Gribble, who runs Kidlit TV out of Tribeca in New York City, um, she I go to her studio and we announce the award, which the the winner, which is a live streaming announcement. And so then Julie and I have become very good friends over the years. So I usually stay with her and her husband for a couple of days, and we you know we do some shopping and manicures and pedicures and and lots of good food. And so I've become very good friends with a lot of people. Um, that have been so generous, you know, to me and supported me in my platform. Um, and so I've been able now to sort of combine the two worlds of SCBWI and Rhyme Revolution. Um, and um, just just being able to get outside of Evansville um, and, and, you know, get to travel to New York and Chicago. I, I have an opportunity to possibly present at a conference in Alaska in a couple of years. Um, and so because of the job that I'm doing now and the connections that I've made, these are things that I would have never gotten to do in my lifetime. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I feel very blessed. You're getting out there and you're meeting like-minded people and, and building yourself a nice community. Exactly. No, for sure. For sure. I, I hit that 5,000 mark on Facebook, you know, months and months ago <laughs> and so I tend to to try to go back and find you know it's hard to find to find people that I don't actually know or people that I don't communicate with um on a daily or weekly basis to try to allow more openings you know into that because I'm always meeting new people um but I am a very loyal Facebook person and I've used that um 
And, but I would say out of the 5,000 Facebook friends that I have, most of them, of course, are for writing and for this business. But I probably met a good one-third of those, if not more, in person. And those are real friendships. And so I know in just about every state, you know, if there's if there's an event that I want to go to, there's somebody probably that I can call and say, hey, can I sleep on your couch this weekend? I'm coming to do this event and, and uh, usually get welcomed with open arms. So. so here's a fun question that I can ask because we've established that you are an expert uh, at attending conferences, at joining organizations, at rising up amongst them to your $2 million salary. You've got it. <laughs> You've got it down. Uh, so having been to so many conferences and knowing that there's no chance we could be outing anybody specific because you, you've been to too many, um, anybody that's met you will maybe wonder if it's them. Uh, but what are the dumbest things that you see writers doing at conferences that writers should not do? Let's do a little public service announcement for all the writers listening about what not to do at a conference. Uh, what not to do at a conference. Okay. Don't go sit in a corner by yourself. You know, between sessions, you need to get out and go to lunch and, you know, introduce yourself to the people sitting around you in a session and try to find a group of people to go to lunch with. And that's how you meet people. You can't, I think the worst thing people can do is go, you know, spend the money and travel and all the expense and effort that it takes to get to a conference, wherever it is, and then spend all of that time alone. You know, you're there to learn, obviously, but you also need to make connections. You know, there are so many people that I've met at conferences that I continue to see again at, at conference after conference after conference, or like I just presented at a conference in Ohio um, just a few months ago, and I saw several, four or five friends that I hadn't seen in about four or five years that we had been at conferences together before. And it's just so exciting to catch up and meet them. Um, Yes, we all stay connected on Facebook, and I know exactly what they're doing. And, you know, we're all sort of coming up through the ranks of, of being successful together. And those of it, you know, those of us that haven't quite made it to that point, we're such big cheerleaders of each other. You know, and we really, it's a very supportive community. Um, writers buy other writers' books. Um, and, you know, because I have a blog, I'm going to, promote books of my friends and 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 support them and buy those books and and do you know the reviews for them and um so you have to get put yourself out there and not be afraid to meet other people um i i think that that is probably the biggest thing that i see people sort of sitting by themselves and um waiting till the next session to start and i, I think you, you cannot be afraid to put yourself out there and meet people it is a cruel irony, though, that uh, few folks are as introverted as writers, and they're some of the ones that most need to get out there and be a little <laughs> bit extroverted. <laughs> yeah, and you know, it's interesting because I love to talk, I love to meet people, and, and I'm, you know, outwardly as appearances are as as outward outward going as I could possibly get, but I will say. Um, I also like my downtime because when you're at conferences like that, especially if you're on a faculty for a conference, you are on for about 20 out of 24 hours a day, <laughs> you know. And so, you know, one thing that I do, I mean, I've often shared rooms with people, but as I've become, you know, um, more, um, it's, you know, become attending more conferences, um, I've learned that sometimes I need to get a room by myself. And so I sort of need need that time to refuel 
And so I have that that quiet time and then I can come back and sort of either do some writing or re reflect on what it is that I've learned that day. So don't be afraid to do that. Like getting a room by yourself is okay. <laughs> um, although I will say, you know, Teresa and Diane and I shared a room in Los Angeles and it was like a big slumber party and, and we had a, a really, really good time together. So I'm open to both, um, but sometimes more than others, I just need to sort of draw it back in and um, reflect. And then you get up in the morning and out you go and you're on, you know, meeting people and sharing what it is that you do, passing business cards out, um, especially as a regional advisor of Indiana. Like my goal was to meet as many other regional advisors and, and people from the other states. We do have a training day. Um, on the Thursday before the um, LA conference starts. And I, so we, pr I printed up buttons um, that said Indiana SCBWI and I was passing those out to people. <laughs> um, and we got them to also pass out to members to sort of create a pride in what it is that we have here in Indiana and um, just creating diversity of everything, of, of genre, of people, of, of stories, um, of lives. But also, it was a great way to meet people. It was kind of a nice icebreaker. Um, so I'm not beyond handing you a button <laughs> to get to know you. <laughs> I kind of like uh, your plan of uh, go out to a conference and schedule it for two weeks and do the conference and be intensely extroverted for a week. And then week two, yeah. introvert time. Uh, get yourself at a nice, quiet writing spot. Yeah, I did that this summer. Well, I've done that several times, but this summer I met my daughter met me out in San Diego. I had never been to San Diego, so I took Amtrak down. I become very brave in my independence of, of being a, a writer. Um, so I flew to to Los Angeles, and then after the conference, took the Amtrak down to San Diego. We met up at this um, apartment that we rented. It was right on the ocean, and we hung out for two or three days and just had some mother-daughter time, you know, as her wedding was approaching. And then I got two or three days to just rest and write and sit and look at the ocean and um, feeling feeling pretty pretty good about life, you know. <laughs> I don't want to completely talk your face off and, and wear you out because <laughs> I know you've got a lot going on and I don't want to keep you talking all night, but I do have about two more questions for you. Does that seem fair? Yeah, we'll, of course. We'll think about maybe calling it a night. Okay. Um, or if you've got secrets that you've never revealed anywhere that you want to share, we can, we can go longer <laughs> for that. <laughs> I have very few secrets. <laughs> well, here's a question that I have to ask everybody. Um, because it's this is the theme of the show. I never, I never, I try never to neglect to ask Angie Karcher, have you ever seen a flying saucer and do you believe in them? I am sad to say I have never seen one, although we did see a flying star driving home from Louisville this weekend. Um, and I, yes, I do believe in them. I am all about um, believing in things that I hope are real. Um, including Bigfoot. <laughs> I, I, I am ashamed to say that I've watched Finding Bigfoot way too many times, and yet they never found him. <laughs> but I do want them to be real. I do want, um, I do believe that there are people or um, aliens or, or whatever beings out um, beyond the earth. And um, so I, I'm fascinated by the unknown, and I'm, I'm pretty much open-minded about everything. Um, but I wish I had seen it. I wish I had seen a UFO. <laughs> it's on my bucket list. I haven't seen one either. 
I've got I a little bit of special cheat question just because it's you and we're talking about uh, <laughs> Evansville's, pre- Evansville's premier historian and you've written a book uh, loosely, closely connected to a haunted library. What's your take on ghosts? Are they, are they a thing? <laughs> yes, I think they are. Um, I, um, I never really had a, a declaration of, of how I felt about that. Um, but this, this past summer, my mother passed away, um, which was a, a, at the end a gift because she had been sick for a very long time. Um, but I, ne- I will, I will tell you, I've never revealed this before. So, so you're, you're getting this first here. I'm leaning um, in close. Yeah. So, um, there was a whole thing with dragonflies that sort of occurred the the day after her funeral uh at least for a month where i would see dragonflies constantly literally dragonflies and virtually like on facebook or somebody would have a dragonfly necklace that i would meet or i looked down one day i was driving to meet the pastor to plan the funeral and i had a bracelet on that had dragonflies on it that i never even realized that were, were dragonflies before so there's that um but also we had um, gone after the funeral to a pizza place, a favorite place where we always hang out when my brother's in town and um, had gone to the restroom. And there was this little, I don't even know how to describe it, but almost like very white smoke image that sort of appeared as I was washing my hands and then it just disappeared and that was it. And that was the day of my mother's funeral. And I just felt some comfort in that. I don't know exactly how to explain it. Um, but I'm certainly somebody who's open-minded. Um, I like to think about the positive side of that. I don't really want to delve too deeply into, um, the scary side of all of it, because I do think there are some darkness that, that could be involved with ghosts and, um people that have unresolved issues in some way um but for me that was a very positive moment and it was sort of a way of my mother i think saying that everything's going to be okay and that you know life is is going to go on and this is what was supposed to happen uh but really honestly for real last question uh is how i always like to end the show because it catches anything i might have missed and that is if there was one or two bits of advice you could go back and give to yourself when you first started writing that you think maybe would have smoothed the path and made things easier for you that writers listening could could benefit from. What would you go back and tell yourself or what do you wish that they knew about writing going in? Yeah, this is an easy one for me now. It's to never give up. Absolutely never give up. If you set a goal for yourself, whatever it is, writing or anything, to be honest, um, be determined, be creative, be perseverant, um, prolific, and don't ever take no for an answer. If somebody says, do you know how to do this? You say yes. Even if you don't, you say yes, and then you figure it out, you know, um, because you will figure it out. If you want to do it badly enough, you will figure it out. Everything that I said yes to is one step closer to the dream. Um, and, you know, over the years, having four small children, very close in age, I would write for a long time and I would submit and then I had to take a break. You know, life would come along. I would have to take a job for a while or whatever occurred and I would feel guilty about that. Well, what I would tell my younger self now is it's okay. Life happens. You have to, your family obviously has to always come first. You take a break. That doesn't mean you're not a writer. That doesn't mean you're not going to do it. Um, you know, I'm 52 and I'm finally having some success at this. Um, and so if you give up, if I gave up when I was 43, 
I would never know that I was actually going to be a writer with six books out by the time I was, you know, 54. Um, and so you have to always be positive. You have to have a thick skin. Um, if somebody's giving you a critique, it's to make your writing better. Yes, you get the final say on whether you take their advice or not. Um, but most of the time they're right. <laughs> um, have a really good critique group um, and continue to create your base of like-minded people and your support group, um, be it in person or um, on social media or however that is by attending conferences and lean on them if you need them. Um, but never give up and just try to stay positive and do what you love. I think if you're doing what you love, it's not work. And I know that um, if I never sold another book today, I would die a happy person um, because I am doing what I love. So you can't ask for much more than that, can you? No, I don't think so. <laughs> Angie, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for clearing the time to, to talk with us tonight. Uh, remind uh, esteemed audience where they can find you online and purchase all your books and all that good stuff. Oh, great. Okay. Well, you can, my website is rhymerev.com. It's R-H-Y-M-E-R-E-V.com. Um, and then also you can find me um, if you just type in Angie Karcher with a K, K-A-R-C-H-E-R. -E it should come up on Google. Um, but you can find me at, at authorangiekarcher at gmail.com is my um, website. And then if you have any interest with Indiana SCBWI or SCBWI in general, um, my email address is uh, indiana-ra at scbwi.org, O-R-G. And as always, esteemed audience, find me at middlegradeninja.com. Go check out past archives of the show, written interviews with agents, editors, writers, all the folks you want to know more about. Uh, make sure you download your free copy of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. Get yourself a copy of the Book of David Chapter 1. They're free. Go nuts. It's a good time. Uh, Angie, I have been asking our guests to sign us off with our extremely ninja-like sign-off phrase, hiya, and what have you. Will you sign us off? I would be glad to. And thank you for having me. Hiya, and what have you.